Oh, good morning, church. Hey, it's good to be up here with you. I get to worship with y'all on a consistent basis, but I rarely get to worship with you in this setting. So I'm personally really excited about this. I started off first service uh, by mentioning that my family and I have been here since 2005, and my dad came up to me after first service, and he said, hey, great job, but uh, you've actually been here since 2003. You are older than you thought you were. And so we, we have now been here for 20 years which is awesome. We've seen so much change about this church. Like when we came, the family theater, which is across the lobby, was our sanctuary. I see people here who helped check me into kids ministry when I was a kid. So much has changed about the church and so much has stayed the same. And I think that's true for me personally as well. I am a creature of rhythm and habit. If I hadn't met my beautiful wife, I would wear the same thing, eat the same thing and do the same thing every single day for the rest of my life. And that's not monotonous to me. That's like comforting in a weird rhythmic way. I don't know if any of you are with me on that. That's how I feel. And something that comes along with that is often brand loyalty. Like you find something you like and then you never deviate from it ever again in your life. So I am that way with a few random things in my life. One of those is shoes. I'm not a sneakerhead by any stretch of the imagination, but I do like Nike shoes. And so I've worn Nikes for a really long time. My dream pair of Nikes in high school was a pair called the Nike Shocks. I'm not sure if any of you know what that is. If you don't, just picture a swoosh and then underneath the heel, four mini trampolines is essentially what it kind of visually looked like. I thought it was so cool. I wanted a pair so bad, a little pricey though. So I, I had to save up. We were kind of like budgeting towards it and I'm finally ready to purchase this pair I'm like, wait, good stewardship of this is actually me purchasing a pair that's one or two sizes bigger than I need, so I'll grow into it. Because I'm gonna need these for a long time, right, if we're gonna spend money on them. And so I bought a pair that was like a size and a half too big, and that's when the Lord told me I was done growing. And so <laughs> I essentially had those shoes, tried to wear them for like a month, and it never really worked out. But when I was in college, I found out at, while on a choir trip to New York City that Nike has a five-story store in New York City. I was like, that sounds awesome. I'm gonna go. So I chose to go and I'm walking between probably floor two and three. And so I get halfway up the staircase and something catches my attention from the corner of my eye. And I look up and I see this. It's a bunch of two-dimensional sneakers hanging down from the ceiling on like fishing line attached to the steel. It's kind of cool. It doesn't really make a ton of sense. Like it feels sporadic. It doesn't feel like it connects with me. And I thought something was just maybe going over my head and I just didn't get it. And then I got to the top of the staircase and I physically turned to look at it and this is what it looked like. It's a Jumpman logo from a famous photo of Michael Jordan in 1983. It is synonymous with the Nike brand and is worth well over a billion dollars. And what I found fascinating about this art installation was that it only makes sense if you're viewing it within its totality and from the right vantage point. It only makes sense to you if you are viewing the whole scope of it and from the right angle. And I think if we're not careful, we can do that same exact thing that I did at the Nike store with the way that we read our Bibles. We can look to the word and separate these stories out and think that they mean different things and it becomes sporadic 
and kind of uninspired and not necessarily for something. It's not telling you a bigger story. So I want us to dive into the word today and think about how all of these small stories tell one holistic, large story. Let's view it within the holistic framework of the whole story of the word of God. If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and flip open to Genesis chapter three. So basically just open your Bible to the very front and flip one or two pages. If you're like me, you like taking notes and marking in your Bible, I will give you a few cues to do that if you like to do that. We're gonna focus on a few keywords here. We're in the middle of a series called Bookends as we help tie together Genesis and Revelation and all of this connective tissue, what is true of God throughout from beginning to end. And today we're gonna be focusing on the concept of the first and the last Adam the first and the last Adam. Paul in his letter to the church in Rome and to the church in Corinth calls Adam a type of the one who is to come. So essentially Adam is this tiny miniature picture of the Messiah, but we're pretty familiar with Adam's story, right? The first two chapters of it are awesome. They're communing with God in this garden. They're learning what it looks like to cultivate the earth. It's blissful. I mean, they're in the Garden of Eden. The word Eden literally translates to delight or pleasure. So they are in the pleasure garden. Like you couldn't draw it up in a more ideal way for Adam and Eve. But Their story doesn't stop there, does it? We see in chapter three that the serpent convinces them to seize autonomy from God, to redefine good and evil on their own terms. So they take and they eat of the fruit. They immediately are aware of their nakedness. They run and they hide from their creator. The Lord sees the whole thing happening. He looks at the serpent and he curses the serpent. He looks at the woman and he curses her. And then he turns to Adam and he says this, starting in 317. He said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, Do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and for his wife, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. What you see in this passage is a drastic alteration from what their Eden reality was just mere verses ago. But little did they know that a truer and a better Adam was already in the works, even in the way that this language is laid out to us in specific words that are being used here in Genesis 3, how they tie into the story of Christ and how they parallel the first Adam and the true and the better one. Many of us have heard the phrase, Christ bore the curse of the fall, right? That feels like a little bit of a Christianese phrase. Christ 
bore the curse of the fall. And I think from an elementary standpoint, we understand that. We track with that. Say Adam and Eve lived, they messed up. Uh, Jesus came and lived, he did not mess up. And then he died, even though he didn't have to. So that's Christ bearing the curse of the fall. And while that is technically accurate, it's actually way more intricate than that. And we can dive into some of the language here that we see in Genesis 3 and how it parallels to Christ fully taking on the curse of the fall. So let me point out seven specific parallels. If you have a pen with you or a highlighter, you wanna highlight those pieces of language in Genesis, we'll do it as we go. The first word is cursed. So we see in Genesis 3:17, the ground is cursed because of you. Paul would say to the church in Galatia, he would say in Galatians 3:13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it's written, curses everyone who's hung on a tree. Jesus did not just free us from the curse, he became the curse on our behalf. It's an important distinction. The second word is sorrow. You'll see this in 3.17, likely translated as the word painful. That word can also be translated as sorrow or sorrow-filled. So sorrow-filled will labor be all the days of your life. Then we see this spoken of Jesus in this beautifully messianic prophetic moment in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom mid hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You have cursed and you have sorrows. Third, you have thorns. The thorns that God promised in his curse would grow from the ground with thistles. Jesus unfortunately embodied in a much more practical way. We see in John 19, verse two, it says the soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. So cursed, sorrows and thorns. The fourth word we have is sweat. It's a very odd way to phrase it. You will sweat for your bread you'll sweat for your food. And so we see this of Jesus in Luke 22, verse 44. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The timing of when this is happening is important because just a few verses prior in Luke 22, Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life. So go with me here. Adam in the garden was told he would have to sweat for bread. And then the bread of life is found sweating in the garden in Luke 22. The parallelism is just really, really rich. The fifth word is dust. You were made from dust and to dust you will return. Psalm 22 says this, my strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and you put me into the dust of death. You're probably like, well, Caleb, that's an Old Testament scripture. Jesus was way after this happened. How could this be about Jesus? Psalm 22 is widely considered as a really haunting messianic prophetic psalm, mainly because the first verse says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which would be some of Jesus's last words that he spoke from the cross. The sixth word is sword. God puts up the cherubim with this flaming sword stationed east of the garden so that they wouldn't be able to get back into the garden. And we see in John 19, 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. So follow me here. So in Genesis, 
the sword would ensure to keep them away from the tree of life. But in the gospel of John, the spear confirms the death of he who is life hanging on a tree. Had a young adult walk up to me after the first service and he was like, hey, enjoyed the service. Can I actually give you a different analogy to use there? It's like, sure, man, I'm all ears. He just walked up with his Bible and he opens up to Matthew chapter 26. And in Matthew 26, I think this is right after Peter cut off the ear as, as Jesus is being arrested and about to be taken away. And Jesus tells him to put back his sword. Don't I have command over the angels? So the sword that we see go up in Genesis chapter three, Jesus is saying, you can put away, I have a new way into the garden of Eden. I'm creating this new way. The last word is death. This is the one word that was not used in the Genesis three passage that we see. It's actually used prior to that when the Lord commanded them not to eat of the fruit or else they would surely die. So they didn't literally physically die in this moment, but they were spiritually separated from God in this moment and would ultimately physically pass away. Hebrews 10 speaks of Christ's death in this way. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now awaiting until his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Church, the connection between the first Adam and the latter Adam is undeniable. Ultimately, this was fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. So Adam's death ended in just that, death. But Jesus's death ended in paving a way into new life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Pastor Tony Evans puts it this way when he talks of the first and last Adam. He says, the first Adam was a death dealer and the latter Adam is a life giver. People who are related only to the first Adam will only ever see physical life. Their future is eternal death. But people who are related to the last Adam not only have the life of the first Adam physically, but they have the life of the last Adam eternally, which is a truly better life. I think for a long time, I assumed that when Adam and Eve started in the garden, like think Genesis one and two, right? They are at 100% relational equity with God. Nothing's been broken. Like there's perfect unity, all is well. They sin and now they're at 0% relational equity. We gotta figure out another way and that's the coming Messiah. And then Jesus shows up, he lives the life we should have lived, dies the death we should have died. And now we're restored back to 100%. So we go quickly from 100 to zero and back to 100. But I think the more I've read these scriptures, the less convinced I am that that's the case. It's not just a restoration to what was, but Jesus is actually inviting you and me into something brand new. So it's not just back to 100, 
It's into something new. Arthur Pink puts it this way. He says, the redeemed have gained more through the last Adam than they ever lost from the first Adam. The redeemed, God's people have gained more through the last Adam than they ever lost through the first Adam. So we're gonna throw a table up real quick. And I wanna show you these contrasts between what was true of Adam and Eve before the fall and what's now true of us after Christ's redemption. We see this pre-fall, Adam and Eve dwelt in earthly paradise, but after Christ, according to Ephesians 2, 6, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Your place has changed. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were partakers of a natural life. After Christ, we are partakers in the divine nature. You sit in that scripture for a little bit, it'll really throw you off. We are partakers in the divine nature. Before the fall, God was with them. God was in their proximity. He was in their vicinity. Nothing was broken, but we're told by Paul in Romans 8 that after Christ, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells inside of you. So God is not just merely with us. He is within us as believers. Before the fall, they were Lord of Eden and post-Christ, we are, cre- we are told that we are heirs of all things and co-heirs with Christ himself. And then before the fall, Adam and Eve were creatures, but post-Christ, we're not just creatures, we've been made members of Christ's body, according to Ephesians 5, 30. Church, we have gained more from Jesus than we ever lost from Adam. We have gained more from Jesus than we ever lost from Adam. I wanna share a few other stories quickly from the Old Testament that show little types of Adam and little types of Christ. Treat them as one small, golden, two-dimensional Air Jordan shoe that by itself makes no sense hanging down from the ceiling, but placed within the mosaic of the larger story, it makes sense. Take Isaac, for example. Isaac was Abraham's one and only son whom he loved. Does that sound familiar? His one and only son whom he loved. He was promised long before he arrived, just like Jesus. And his birth was a little bit of a miracle because his mother was in her 90s when she gave birth to him in the same way that Jesus's birth was a miracle because his earthly father somehow had nothing to do with it. Isaac ascended up a hill prepared to be a sacrifice and laid himself down on the altar. But at the last minute was saved by a ram in the thicket. Isaac is a tiny type of he who is to come. Take Joseph, for example. Joseph was betrayed by those closest to him and sold for silver. He was falsely accused of crimes he did not commit. And somehow God used the bad things that happened to him as an opportunity to bring freedom to God's people. But not only was freedom brought to God's chosen people, but freedom was granted to the Egyptians in Genesis. This would symbolize and foreshadow the fact that Jesus's death and substitution was not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. Just wanted to be super dramatic in that moment. (laughs) Did it work? Sweet. So it symbolized that it wasn't just for the Jew, but it was also for the Gentile. So Joseph we see is another type of Christ. Take Moses, called by God to lead his people out of oppression and into freedom. 
Moses gets to the sea, his people are being pursued. He stretches out his hands, the sea splits in two so that his people can be ushered into freedom. Jesus ultimately on the cross with his arms spread, took his last breath, the veil was torn in two so that we now have a way to freedom. Moses is a type of Christ. The most obvious one in all of scripture is probably King David, right? A meek, lowly shepherd boy who all of a sudden ascended to become a king. When facing war, he was the only willing one to be the sole representative on his people's behalf to face Goliath in the same way that Jesus was the only willing and sole representative to face death for us. David is a picture of Jesus. It's not just men either. Esther is a picture of Jesus. The Ruth and Boaz story is a beautiful picture of Jesus. And it's not just people. There are things in the Old Testament that also symbolize what Jesus would ultimately become. Think about Noah's ark delivering people. Think about Jacob's ladder bridging a gap between people and God. Think about the Passover lamb, the symbolism for communion. Think about manna from heaven, your daily provision. All of these things are adding up as tiny, tiny, tiny pieces of God saying, I have someone coming who will fulfill and provide to the fullest extent. Most of the people I just mentioned committed murder or adultery. There was some sort of mess up that every single one of those humans went through. They would ultimately fail where Jesus would ultimately succeed. We were talking in our teaching collaboration meeting. Every Tuesday, the teacher for that Sunday gets to process some of what they're thinking and, and get some feedback. It was super helpful for me. And one of our pastors said, it's kind of like Jesus is the perfect version of the sum total of every lesser Adam. Jesus is the perfected version of the sum total of every lesser Adam. In fact, John would put it this way in his vision in Revelation chapter five, starting in verse one, that Jesus is the only one worthy. He says this, I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look within it. I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, look the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Church, Jesus is the only one. He is the perfect version of the sum total of all of the lesser Adams. And every story in scripture ultimately points us to this mosaic ultimately points us to Jesus and Jesus alone as the truer, the better, the only perfect, the fully restoring, the aptly fulfilling and complete Adam. It's just Jesus. A person alive today will see more advertisements in one year than someone who was alive 50 years ago would see in their entire lifetime. A person alive today will see more advertisements in one year and those who are alive five decades ago would see in their entire lifetime. And church, what, what this means is that we will be exposed to more violence 
more disasters, more of the world's versions of the worst atoms than any generation before us. I would argue that we are seeing too many things. We don't know how to process our visions getting blurry. We're losing sight of what is important, what is crucial and what is not. And we can see the fruit of this in our culture, can we not? There's culture wars, there's mental health crises, and it's a world that's created this world that is less in touch with the rhythms of its creator than ever before. I'm the oldest of five boys. I have four younger brothers. Uh, The two youngest ones are by far the most active. We're all generally active, but uh, the youngest two got most of the athletic blessing in the family. So one of them is a, a decathlete, and the other is studying to be a physical therapist. They're both super athletic and they both have experience pole vaulting. And if you had to pick one sport for me to never sign myself up for for the rest of my life, it is pole vaulting. It is essentially the world's most aggressive trust fall. Like, sincerely, I don't get why people do that on purpose. And so my brothers were texting with me a few weeks ago and they're trying to explain the mechanics of it to me because I have no idea what I'm doing, right? Nor will I ever try to do it. So I'm not really sure why we were talking about it, but we're talking about it and they're explaining, you start really far away from your launch point, you're holding this massive pole and you're sprinting full speed, but your eyes have to be laser focused on one thing or your pole vault fails. That pole has to be planted in a box that's in front of the launching point. And if you miss it, you will fail every single time. And you will probably get hurt doing it. And I think that's such an interesting analogy for our walk as well. Your vision is crucial to the success of the moment you're in when you're pole vaulting. And I think vision has an important impact on how we function as believers as well. There's so many things for us to see. Too many things for us to see. Where we set our eyes is crucial, church. Where we set our eyes is crucial. King David would say it this way in Psalm 27. One thing I seek, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's that simple. One thing I seek, and it's to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. So can you imagine with me for a second, being handed and granted the world's best Adam, the best, the truest, the most, and only fully faithful Adam that's ever existed, and to turn your gaze, to shift your attention away onto something that's less valuable, onto something that's more temporal, something that's probably more volatile, for us to take our attention and shift it away from the only one who's worthy of our attention, throws us for a loop, church. When we put our eyes on that which is eternal, it enables us to better engage with that which is temporal. When we put our eyes on that which is eternal, it engages, it allows us to engage better in the world that is temporal. I believe that we can be tempted to respond in a few different ways if we ever elect to shift our gaze away from our creator. I think it can take three different forms. I think the first one is the most obvious possible outcome. We can choose to place our hope in lesser things. 
And I think that's something everyone in this room can unanimously agree on. Yeah, that makes sense. But when it comes to actually practically stepping into it, there are really tangible things, even good things, worthy things of your attention, but not of your ultimate attention that we wanna look at and say, I'm gonna place my hope in that. Can I be honest with you, church, and say that I'm really concerned about next year's election cycle? That we will very easily be tempted to place our hope in a candidate in front of us. Maybe it's not a political candidate for you. Maybe it's your spouse and you just have unrealistic and unhealthy expectations for perfection from them. They will let you down. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's your relationship with your job and how you work and the ethic that you provide towards it. Whatever it is, church, if your hope is not placed in Jesus, it will lead you to a dead end road. It's gonna lead us into a dead end road. May we not place our hope in lesser things and fix our eyes on Jesus, who is only the only worthy one. Secondly, I think we are tempted to place our despair in this world. What do I mean by that? And if you're a believer in Jesus, Paul tells us that we bear the image of the son of heaven. We bear the image of the man of heaven. And if we're getting bogged down by the brokenness of the world consistently, then we're not actually allowing the Holy Spirit to infuse the mind of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the light, the life, and the hope of Christ in us that he may work and push that through us to the world around us. And what we end up doing is getting bogged down by the despair that we see in our world. And we allow that to infuse itself in us, whether we're thinking about global despair or circumstantial despair that you may be facing right now that's very real, but when you allow that to infuse itself within you, the fruit of that is not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of that is self-motivation, self-preservation, self-hope. So when we think about despairing and grieving and being downcast. I, I do wanna be clear. Those are all okay things to be, but they're not great places to stay. You can despair, you can be downcast, you can grieve loss. That's okay to do. Just look at the Psalms. They are brutally honest, but almost every Psalm that is brutally and challengingly honest has one of two things. One, it's placed in front of the Lord as a prayer, still. And then secondly, it ends in hoping in the Lord. And yet I will still praise you. Yet I will put my trust in the Lord, praising the Lord for his steadfast love towards us. Those are okay things to do, to despair, to grieve, but don't stay there, church. Don't allow the world to infuse its despair into you. Allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in and through you, that the fruit of the Spirit may be expressed to those around you. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you will show his fruit. The last piece, I feel like we identify ourselves with the lesser Adam, even though God has already identified us with the ultimate Adam. Second Corinthians 5 says this, he made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become 
the righteousness of Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are not identified by your sin anymore. Do not treat yourself that way and certainly don't treat other believers that way either. You have been made new. It's even beyond just being restored to what was in Eden. You have been made new church. So would you step into that? Would you walk in the newness of life that's been handed to you by the true and better Adam? When we put our eyes on that which is eternal, it enables us to better engage with the things of this world. My prayer for us this morning is that we are just keeping our eyes constantly on Jesus. One thing we seek, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The vision and the bent of all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is all telling one story. It's Jesus, it's his sinless life, it's his sacrificial death, and it's his perfect fulfilling redemption. That's it. So if you're ever in here on a Sunday and you're here the next Sunday and the next Sunday and you're walking out and you look at each other and you're like, man, it just, it just kind of feels like they're teaching the same thing. It's because we are. We're teaching the exact same thing. And we can jump into the intricacies and the nuance of a cultural context and language. And what did that really mean in the Hebrew? And what did it really mean in the Greek? It all points to Jesus. It all has the same focal point. Every tiny little two-dimensional shoe points to the one large mosaic that is Christ and himself crucified for you and for me. That's it. That's the sum total of all of scripture. That's it. I wanna close our time together this morning reading from a letter to the church in Rome from Paul in Romans chapter five. I think he really perfectly depicts what it looks like what our world was like in Adam and what our world is now like in Christ. If you're comfortable with it, would you close your eyes? I just wanna read this over you this morning and we're gonna close in worship together. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account where there isn't law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He being Adam is a type of the coming one. Here's the good news, church. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass, the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin because from one sin came judgment resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. If by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who have received the overflow of grace and this gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So then as through one trespass, there's condemnation for 
all people. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for all people. For justice through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came to multiply trespass, but church, here's the good news. When sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so that justice, sin reigned in death. So also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you this morning, church. Don't settle for a lesser thing. Don't fix your eyes on a lesser thing. Don't let the despair of the world infiltrate your life. Would you exhibit the fruit of the spirit by standing in the confidence in which you can boldly approach the throne of God in? As someone who has not just been forgiven of sin, but has been clothed in the righteousness of your creator, not viewed as a first Adam, but viewed in light of what the last Adam did on your behalf. Hallelujah for the cross this morning, church. Would you stand and sing?